0: Amen. It's going to be a good sermon, I can tell, because I already had my wife and my daughter creating a disturbance in the front row, and then right after that, a Rubik's cube comes rolling down the front, and uh, you, you know, you never know what's going to happen at at church. I love, I love church. I, I love church. I, I love. Uh, uh, there's a blend of reverence and, and fun in, in a place like this, and, uh, and I, think, I think God smiles on us in our folly sometimes, and uh, I'm really thankful for the, for the God that we serve. He's a God of peace and comfort and joy, and uh, difficult times that we live in on a, on a number of fronts, uncertain times uh, for sure in, in some ways. And I know some people um, are struggling with things that are going on on a number of fronts in the in the world that we live in. Let me let me remind you that that we serve uh, a God of order. Uh, he's a God of peace. Uh, uh, he he's he's omniscient, which means he knows everything. So uh, none of the events of the past year, uh, you know, here in the United States, or in the Middle East, or wherever you want to point to on the, the globe. Uh, none of that caught him by surprise. And sometimes I have to kind of rein myself in and remind myself of who God is, because that's really all that matters. And uh, so I'm going to trust him for the future. I'm going to hold on to the promises that are found in, in his word. He's, he's got a plan. He's, he's taking us somewhere. doesn't mean we don't have a part. We do. Uh, but God isn't taken aback by, by any of this. And so I'm going to trust him. I'm going to rest. I'm going to rest in him. And sometimes you got to turn off the news. you got to turn off the computer, the social media. And you just got to kind of get, get away from that a little bit. And you got to say, you know what, God? I, I'm going to trust you. You know what you're doing. Uh, I, I'm... I'm much better at doing my part than I am at, at doing your part. I say that to myself often. And, uh, you know, <clears throat> we're here to do God's work, not God's job. That's tweetable. <laughs> we'll put that out on the sign up there. That's good. <laughs> but anyway, the premise for the series, like Samuel says, comes from uh, a poster that I saw many years ago. It's called Everything I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten by a guy by the name of Robert Fulgum, he apparently put that together. And the basic concept is is that everything we really need to know in life, we learned early on. Things like share, play fair, don't hit, uh, put things back where you found them, say you're sorry. Those are are concepts we, we learn on day one and they apply really for, hopefully, for all the days of our life. Over the years, I've come to see the book of Genesis that way. Genesis is the book that establishes the patterns and the methods and the procedures for life in the world that God created. It all starts in the book of beginnings. It all starts in the book of origins. It all starts in the book of Genesis. And even more specifically, I think, Genesis chapter 3. It's almost as if everything I need to know about the Bible, I learned in Genesis 3. Last week in part 1, we learned that there is an adversary. He's the archenemy, the arch rival, the antithesis of God. The first verse of Genesis 3 says... The serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God made. And just to be clear, the serpent is not our adversary. It's the one who inhabited the serpent, the devil. He is our adversary. Another basic truth then for this week, we find in Genesis 3, is that mankind was created Good. God did not create us evil. He did not create us to fail. He did, out of his great love for us, give us free will. And that meant our innocence was fragile. That takes us to part 2 and Genesis 3 beginning in verse 2. It says, And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die, for God does know that in the day that you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as God's knowing good and evil. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. Now in the very next phrase, the the second half of verse 6, in the part that I left off, Adam sins. The human race falls, and mankind is changed forever. Our fragile innocence is lost and we can never be the same again. From that moment on, the very nature of the human race is altered. From this time forward, there's something different coursing through our veins. There's a problem that needs to be dealt with, a disease that needs to be remedied, a plague that needs to be addressed, a malady that needs to be cured. Our fragile innocence has been lost, and our lost innocence can never be regained. But the sin issue must be dealt with, or we can never be saved. That brings us to the goodness of God. We know that God is good, and all of God's creation was created good. God did not design the world to sin. We chose to sin. Therefore, God is not responsible for the suffering of the world. Suffering came as a consequence of our choices. Suffering came as a result of sin. This is a a key and vital principle necessary for us to understand the Bible and to understand the ways of God. For us to experience God's best in a fallen world, now that we're fallen, we weren't created fallen, but now that we've sinned, in order for us to experience the best that God has for us, God must discipline us. And God's goodness is established in the why of his discipline. In Hebrews 12 Verse 5 and 6, it says, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when you are rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Most of us ascribe to this same principle in the realm of parenting, right? A loving parent sees the value of the time and the energy and the effort invested into the life of their child. So when we say, don't stick your finger in the electrical outlet, it's not because we don't want our kids to have the fun and the excitement of experiencing electricity. (laughs) It's because we don't want them to be hurt by the consequences of disobedience. When a child disobeys and the parent disciplines them, the cry is often, you don't love me. The reality could not be farther from the truth. And so it is with God. Discipline is not punishment. Discipline is not retaliatory. Discipline is not doled out in anger or as retribution for bad behavior. Discipline is training. Discipline is teaching. Discipline is correction. And true discipline is an expression of love. We hear that as we listen to more of Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 9. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh who corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not? "...much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live. For they, speaking of our human fathers, for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. But he, God, for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness." Now, no chastening, verse 11 says, "...for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterwards..." It yields the peaceable fruit of, remember this word, righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Now, since I'm talking about discipline here today, allow me to digress. If you're sitting where you're sitting, that's, these aren't the words you want to hear. Allow me to digress a bit into parenting. I don't talk a lot about parenting from the pulpit, so allow me this opportunity to give you some unsolicited advice. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. Why didn't know. <laughs> as, parents, as parents, it begins with, with seeing yourself as called by God to raise your kids. And to communicate effectively to them the authority entrusted to you by God as parents. Understanding that will change the way you discipline. If our children do not learn the proper response to authority, they will struggle in virtually every area. Of life. If you're, if you're a young parent and you're looking for a resource, you want to read a book or two, I would highly recommend any of John Rosemont's books. In my opinion, he's probably the best out there. Uh, here are six parenting tips from John Rosemont that he gives in his book called The Well Behaved Child. Discipline that really works. So this is John Rosemont. I'm going to give you six tips, short paragraph after each one that I'll read to you. Uh, Don't make excuses for your kids. That's number one. Don't make excuses for your kids. Accept the reality that your kids, like all people, and this is our sermon today, have a sin nature. It's natural for them to misbehave. While you love your kids, they are not innocent. Remember that the root word of of discipline is disciple. And disciplining your kids is a vital part, hear me now, of their spiritual growth. Don't make excuses for them when they behave badly. Instead, turn it into a teachable moment. Challenge them to learn how to do better and help encourage them along the way. Number two, view discipline as a form of love. This may seem surprising, but your kids actually want you to discipline them. Discipline makes kids feel secure in the knowledge that their parents care enough to, about them to help them learn to make wise choices in life. According to John Rosemont, studies show most the most obedient kids are also the happiest kids. Try to see your efforts to discipline them as an important way of expressing your love. Number three, be short and sweet. When giving your kids instructions, be direct and use as few words as possible. You don't need to justify your instructions to your kids. To reason with a child only gives them opportunity to argue with you. Just let them know what you expect If they ask why, John Rosemont says, simply reply, because I said so. You don't say it because it's easier, you say it because it's the lesson they need to learn. I know the modern method is to reason with your kids, but you're wasting your time if you're trying to convince a three-year-old why she should pick up her toys when she's just going to play with them again tomorrow. Because I said so is plenty of reason. Number four, and this is, uh, I attribute this to Barney Fife, nip misbehavior in the bud. Nip it in the bud. Be consistently intolerant, intolerant of misbehavior in your kids. And, and the emphasis there is on the word consistently. Be consistently intolerant of misbehavior. Deal with it right away. Letting your kids know you won't accept anything less than proper behavior at all times and in all situations. Number five, let your kids solve their own problems. I know. Rather than agonizing over how to solve all your kids' problems, motivate them to seek solutions to their own problems. Let them feel the pain their problems cause and help them find remedies without rescuing them. Number six, follow through with consequences. When your kids misbehave, calmly enforce appropriate consequences right away. Don't threaten, don't warn, don't give second chances, don't make deals. So those are six parenting tips from John Rosemont. He's the expert. Here are three ways I would encourage you as parents. I'm the knucklehead. So that was John Rosemont, the expert. This I'm differentiating between these two groups of uh, tips here. Three ways I would encourage you as parents. Number one, do not allow your home to be child-centered. It does not benefit you. It does not benefit the child. Big families tend to have well-behaved, productive, hardworking children. And I believe it's because the home does not revolve around a child. Children in large families tend to learn quickly. They're part of the team. And, and the family and the home needs them to contribute. Now, you can implement that same principle no matter how few kids you have. When a baby is born, he needs you to serve him. It's true. The problem is some parents never evolve out of that phase. Don't get stuck in the servant phase. Don't have a child-centered home. Number two, parent with a long-range, big-picture perspective. It's not as much about the moment as it feels like. Right, parents? In the toy aisle at Target, when the four-year-old's flipping out, it feels like it's all about this moment. Get me through this moment. Be good, and I'll get you ice cream on the way home. It's a tragic mistake. So instead, think in terms of what your real goal is. Your goal is not to get out of this store. That's not your goal. That's a short-term goal. The long-range, big-picture goal is to teach my child this behavior is inappropriate and there are consequences. So parent with a long-range, big-picture perspective. And number three, purpose to enjoy each stage of parenting. If I did one thing well as a parent, this is what I did well. I enjoyed each stage of parenting. I'm so thankful for everything that I learned here at Central Assembly as far as parenting goes. I got saved when my kids were small. And I learned to appreciate the task entrusted to me by God. And I enjoyed the baby years. I enjoyed the toddler times, the kids stage, and the teen years too. I love, I absolutely positively love being a dad. And now I enjoy my children as adults, except when they disrupt the service. <laughs> no, I, I absolutely enjoy uh, my children as adults, and now I get to enjoy their kids. I never, I never prayed for the years to, to speed by, and I don't want to go back either. I, I loved it all, and I love where I am now. Enjoy every stage of parenting. Don't wish it away. It it goes by fast enough. Now, that's my little dissertation on parenting. Take it for what it's worth. Just keep in mind that God has a similar perspective with you. He sees us not just as children. He sees us as his children. And he's doing all that he can to train us and to teach us to make good decisions. Adam and Eve were faced with a decision in the Garden of Eden. God gave clear instruction. This is where Satan enters the picture and he puts his spin on it. And the first people of the human race have a decision to make. And it makes me think of fishing lures. Have you ever been fishing with an old guy? He he probably has a gigantic tackle box filled with lures and bobbers and rapolas. I don't know what a rapola is, but I wanted to say (laughs) rapola. But the whole time you're out fishing, the old guy only uses three lures. I guess it's because they work. And we can learn a lot about life from fishing lures. Adam and Eve went for the the shiny object in the water. And they were were hooked. Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore, as by one man, speaking of Adam, sin entered into the world, and death by sin. So death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. Our fragile innocence was lost. Now, there were two trees distinct from all of the others in the Garden of Eden, according to Genesis 3. One was the tree of life. And, I, and I, I'm distinguishing these because sometimes uh, when we read this, we kind of, they kind of morph into one. There's really two trees. One is that are distinct from all the other trees. Number one is the tree of life. This is the tree that would be eaten of in order to live forever. After the fall of man, after Adam sinned, Adam and Eve were were banned from the garden. Lest they eat from the tree of life, the Bible says, and live forever. So out they went. The other tree distinct from all the rest is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's a fascinating name, isn't it? This is the tree that would provide the test in the first probationary period, the first dispensation of man known as innocence. The instructions were clear. The woman understood perfectly well the test before her and Adam. In fact, it says this, beginning in verse 2 of chapter 3, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but... Of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, the garden was lush and plenteous. The fruit and the foods available would be almost too many to list. Everything they wanted and plenty of it. But there was a forbidden fruit. And forbidden fruit has a strange appeal. And let's not forget the adversary, the slanderer, is involved in the process too. Now apparently to this point, Adam and Eve are perfectly content to obey God. They simply take him at his word. Let's call it fragile innocence. When he says don't eat from the tree, they don't eat from that tree. When God says, don't put your finger in the electrical outlet, they're good with that. But then Satan comes along and he gets Eve thinking. And every guy knows that when he comes home and his wife says, honey, I've been thinking. <laughs> Either we're moving or we're knocking out walls. There's, there's some kind of a major project or expenditure coming my way that's all i know for sure at that point the seduction of, of eve by the devil begins with a with a twisting of god's word and now he's got eve thinking and the serpent said unto the woman you're not you're not going to die for God knows that in the day that you eat thereof your eyes will be opened and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Again, that name of that tree. And the next time Eve looks at the tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, she, she sees it through different eyes. The woman saw that the tree, verse 6 says, the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, and it was desired to make one wise. Our perspective determines how we look at life, doesn't it? The spirit and the flesh, the Bible says, are contrary to each other. First John 2.16, and this is way toward the end of the Bible, one of the small... Smaller books of John, there's three of them. 1 John 2.16 says, All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, are not of the Father, they're of the world. Suddenly, to Eve, the, the tree had new appeal. It was like that shiny fishing lure flashing its colors in the water. And though she had all, think about this, she had all the other trees to eat from, she began to focus on what the devil was dangling in front of her. And there is no denying it caught her fancy. And this is what we read about in in Genesis 3, 3, 6. The tree was, was good for food. That speaks of the lust of the flesh. It was pleasant to look at, the lust of the eyes. And it was desired To make one wise, the pride of life. It's like the old guy using the same three fishing lures. The devil uses the same old tricks too. It really hasn't changed since day one. So let's fast forward from that moment. Thousands of of years ahead from Satan's trickeries way back in the Garden of Eden to the time of Jesus. The ministry of the Messiah is just beginning. He's, he's introduced, sort of, uh, in, in uh, Matthew chapter 3 when he's baptized by John the Baptist. From there into Matthew chapter 4, Jesus heads out into the desert, into the, the wilderness, for 40 days of fasting. 40 days where he spent time with his Father as he's about to begin his official ministry on earth. And lo and behold... In the desert, he encounters the devil who's fishing with some of his favorite lures. The tempter came to him and said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Jesus answered and said unto him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Note how Jesus refers back To the word of God. The one who is famous for twisting the word. The devil, the slanderer, twists scripture. And Jesus says, it is written. Verse 5, the devil took him up on top of the pinnacle of the temple. And they overlooked the holy city. If you be the son of God, cast yourself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over thee. Jesus said unto him again, it is written. Written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. the devil said unto him in verse 9, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said, Get thee hence, Satan. And one more time he says, It is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord your God and him only. It is written. Listen to me, church. A mind empty of God's word will be filled with the devil's lies. Know the word of God. This is how we deal with the wiles of the evil one. This is how we deal with temptation. Know scripture. Trust scripture. Quote scripture. Pray scripture. Sing scripture. That's what Jesus did. And the devil came up empty even though he was using his best lures it is written turn these stones to bread think about it 40 days of fasting jesus had fasted for 40 days devil says turn these stones to bread and jesus says man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of god but the temptation the lure is the lust of the flesh he brings Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple, and they look over the holy city, lust of the eyes. This can all be yours. The pride of life. The same three lures, the same three lies, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The same three lures that are still in play today. The devil knows what works. He knows where his best success has been, and like the old fisherman, he uses the lures that have the highest rate of success. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, it's of the world. Now we know about fishing, but we need to know it's also the principle of temptation, and that's this. The hook goes in a lot easier than it comes out. Tanya heads up our Celebrate Recovery ministry. She would understand that principle. There's there's an adversary, and he uses twisted scripture to muddle the picture. So in response, Jesus brandishes scripture like it's the sword of the Spirit That it's meant to be. It is written. Come on, church. I encourage you, pick up your Bibles. I don't mean just pick it up on Sunday. I mean, pick up your Bibles. I mean, get your nose in your Bible. I mean, study the Word of God. It's never been more important Than it is now. You better know what God says because there's an adversary, there's an enemy out there who's trying to distort it, who's trying to pervert it, who's trying to twist it into saying what he wants it to say. And so you better be able to take a twisted scripture and look at the devil in the eye and say, It is written. There's a difference between righteousness and innocence. And when it comes to salvation, I don't want to be guessing about what I need to be saved. I want to know. Now, I'm not sure the average Christian on the street, even the Christian in the pew, really knows what they need to be saved. I think if we did, I think we would see Jesus differently. People think, that will be saved because God is love or because he will forgive us or, or maybe we said the sinner's prayer a few years ago or because of faith or because of confessing sin or even because of, of repentance. The reality is the requirement, hear me now, church, the requirement for salvation is righteousness. Now many of those other things that we think we need for salvation, are actually our means of attaining righteousness. We're no longer innocent. We will never be innocent again. But we can attain righteousness, not not through our own efforts, but only by faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to Romans chapter 3. Paul starts out by describing, I'm sorry, it's Romans chapter 10, verse 3. And Paul starts out by describing the Jews, and he was a Jew, trying to work their way to God. And and this is what he says, for they, the Jews, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Listen, that's a bad formula, okay? Okay? First of all, they're ignorant of God's righteousness. That doesn't sound good. Second, they're trying to establish their own righteousness. Good luck with that. And then three, they're not submitting themselves to the righteousness of God. And so then in the very next verse, verse 4 of chapter 10, Paul marries the concept of Christ fulfilling the law and then becoming our righteousness, By faith. Here's what it says. It's a great verse. You can't say it any clearer. It says Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. To who? To everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law. He fulfilled it. Now he can become our righteousness. It's a righteousness that can only be attained by faith. We'll never be innocent, but we can be righteous again by faith in Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what we need to be saved. Fragile innocence. You know, it's it's one of the 16 fundamental truths of the assemblies of God. It's number four of the 16, actually. The fall of man. It's a painful lesson from Genesis chapter 3. Mankind lost its innocence. We're we're a fallen, sinful human race. But we can find righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, we need Jesus. Romans chapter 4, verse 3, speaking of Abraham, the father of faith, right? It says, Abraham... Listen to the words very carefully. Abraham believed God. That speaks of faith, right? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So how do we attain righteousness? By believing God. By taking God at his word. We will never be innocent but we can be righteous by believing in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel message Lord I pray for each one here today Lord there's a part of it that sounds too good to be true I still feel like I've got to do something I've got to to earn it and in, in reality I know I could never earn it I could never be good enough but if I trust in Jesus I find my righteousness in him Salvation isn't really about me. It's about Jesus. And so, Lord, even today, I acknowledge my faith in you, my hope in you. You're all that I have. Lord, the Bible says that that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Lord, that's me. I fall short. But, Lord, I thank you that you sent Jesus into the world to die for my sins, And the blood that he shed on my behalf on Calvary's cross washes away my sin, cleanses me from all unrighteousness. Now once again, in your eyes, Heavenly Father, through the work of Christ, I am seen as righteous. Lord, that's my hope. So Lord, for the one that's here today, That's never acknowledged you as Lord and Savior. Maybe they've tried to be good, but now that they've heard the message, they realize they fall short. They're like me. They fall short. And so what hope do we have? Our hope is in Jesus. Lord, wash away my sins. Cleanse me from my unrighteousness. And Lord, that makes me want to live for you. That makes me want to become all that I can be as a child of God. Accepting and receiving your discipline. Knowing that you, those that you discipline, it's just a sign that you love them. So Lord, we receive that from you today. What an amazing journey we find ourselves on. We love you. We honor you. We glorify you. We thank you for dealing with the sin issue so that we could once again be righteous in your eyes. We pray that today in Jesus' name. Amen.